Yo, how are you doing, folks? Welcome to episode 61, the last episode of the year of the Simple Life podcast. It's been an interesting week. It's been an interesting year. Kind of glad to see the end of it. Uh, Looking forward to what 2022 brings. Uh, Kind of feel like I've saved one of the best for the last year, guys, for the last of the year. This is a guest I've been uh, looking to book for a little while now. And they have uh, thankfully managed to make a little bit of time for us. And we're going to have uh, a couple of hours now discussing what is, I don't know, an amazing body of work, I would say. So tonight's guest is an American Rastafari cannabis and free speech activist, author, actor, perennial political candidate. We'll discuss what that means in a minute. Restaurateur, uh, founder of the Legalized Marijuana Party, temple operator, and America's public enemy 420. He is NJ Weedman. How are you doing, brother? I'm all right, yourself. How are you? I'm good. I'm glad to get that introduction out of the way. When I was putting it together, I was just so just like in awe of all of the kind of things that you've done. I, I knew a bit of your kind of history and some of your work. But then when I went to put the bio together, all these different narratives kept popping up. And I was just like, wow. So I've got got some good questions, I think, here. So I'm really looking forward to to exploring uh, this subject with you, man. All right. Hey, I, I do want to correct one thing. OK, hit me. Um. It goes to religion. I bounced around with this different religion. I obviously, as a kid, I grew up a black Baptist from a black church. Um, but then there was a time period in my teens that I wanted to know something different. So I kind of went there with, with uh, Islam. Some point in my twenties, I started exploring other things. Mm-hmm. So at some point, Rastafarianism, I got attracted to it. A lot of that had to do with weed and Bob Marley. You know what I mean? Uh, so weed and Bob Marley, you know, dreads, this, that, and the other. I said, but I've even evolved past, I've evolved past all religions. To be honest with you, I, I call myself more than an agnostic. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll even slip and say, I'm an atheist. I'm not sure about religion. Religion became this big, uh, I don't know what this is, is the big question mark in my, in my life. But I noticed on bios and descriptions, because the internet never leaves, nothing ever goes, that at some point I did say I was a Rastafarian in the late 90s, and it just still attaches to me all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, So I just wanted to correct that, or not correct it, but at least clarify it, that yes, there mm-hmm. was a time when I would have proudly said that, and you can probably find videos of me saying that. But at this point in my life, I'm not just not really there. Man, mm-hmm. I don't want people calling me out and think I'm a hypocrite because they read yesterday that I'm a Rastafarian. And then tonight they see me eating some meat somewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I, you know, you're a hypocrite. And I'm like, dude, listen, the internet saves everything. <laughs> Too true, too true. Um, yeah, so thank you for, for correcting me on that. It's one of the things I often worry about with production, uh, producing these bios is how up-to-date um, all the information is because, as, as you've just uh, sort of alluded to, it's the culmination and the body of our work and everything that we've said, especially when you become an activist or somebody in the public sphere. The, the internet seems to want to create a catalog of everything you've ever said. And there are certain individuals within certain communities that really get a kick out of trying to sew all these things together and going, ah, oh, there's an inaccuracy, there's an inaccuracy, without recognizing the fallibility, the humanity behind these, these acts of activism, these you know movements. Yep. There's, uh, 
Yeah, there's a lot there. <laughs> there's a lot. I mean, my activism practically took over my whole life for a while. Mm. And um, publicly, because I became this public figure in activism, people only look at the, the activist side of me and forget, like, there's a, I got kids, I got family, this, that. I got a dog and a cat. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I'm just weed man publicly to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You know, everywhere I go, someone's asked. I pulled up to a drive-thru yesterday at a Taco Bell, and the guy at the drive-thru wanted to, wanted to buy a bag of weed from me. <laughs> like, dude, I don't even sell weed like that in my out of my pocket or the corner or nothing. I have a place, a business, and I've pretty much been like that pretty much for years. Like, mm. I just don't sell weed. Anyway, there's a personal side. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things I want to kind of explore in this podcast. It's why I kind of created this platform. I've been an activist in the UK for six or seven years. We had some success with various uh, a club that we put together. We didn't have a sort of in the same as the Spanish uh, model. We didn't have a, a solid premises. So we'd free float around. We'd use cafes, hotels, various venues. We'd do public, we call them protestables based on uh, Vivian McPeak's work, you know, Seattle Hempfest. So yes. using the same kind of ethos and ideology. I was actually then lucky enough to, to head out to Hempfest and meet uh, Vivian, who's been a previous guest on the podcast recently as well, actually. And so we, we got sort of movement with things, but then, COVID really just swept everything away from us. The medical bill in the UK really got co-opted by big corporate interests and left behind the little guys. It used the front men of the activists and the women and men and women and their sick children, the, the ill and the infirm to really push an agenda that then has left them rich and as poorer. So yeah. the- you know, that's how I felt here in New Jersey that you know, that there were activists, me being one of them, me being one of the more louder ones, but me being one of them, that we were pushing for legalization. And as we were pushing for legalization, the big corporations were coming in and basically bribing our politicians to, uh, you know, they call it donations. They call it everything but bribery. But that's really what it is. They come in and give money to this, that, and the other that the politician likes, the politician can take care of, uh, you know. And at the end, they get what they want. They get bills and laws written for them, the corporations, the Walmarts of weed. And my thing that kind of stood out amongst different activists here was the fact that I would argue about the big corporations coming, that this should be the little guy's thing. We won this war on weed and we're not getting on the back, getting to the back of the bus, you know? Um, to steal Rosa Parks. You know, who, you're from England, but do you know yeah. who Rosa Parks is? Okay. Yeah, she's a worldwide known figure activist. Well, Rosa Parks fighting, fighting segregation refused to get to the back of the bus or off the bus. And that was the stand I took about this cannabis, the cannabis, the cannabis. Mm-hmm. I'm not getting to the back. I'm not getting off. I'm riding this bus too. And, and my, my saying was I'm riding it just like the white guys hashtag sell weed like I'm white. I don't know if you've seen that, (laughs) but that, that was my, I'd say my latest public civil disobedience, part of my activism, but Mm. civil disobedience. I am not getting off this bus as legalization is coming. The politicians are 
and here in this country were, and the way it looks to here in this country to black guys like me who went to prison for weed, that now the white guys get to do it. They changed the name from marijuana and weed and herb and all that, and now they call it cannabis. Uh, what is cannabis? Caucasian acceptable marijuana. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so that's the, that's the stance I took. And just basically just said, hey, you know, uh, this is civil disobedience. I'm going to sell weed just like I'm white. Um, if your audience did that hashtag, hashtag sell weed like I'm white. Just like I said, it sell weed like I'm white. Um, it'll take you to a body of activism work that I, 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 I did on purpose to ensure that that civil, civil disobedience would be put on the internet. Um, Forever. Like we just talked about it. Forever. <laughs> Somebody a thousand years from now is going to look back and see this particular guy that had this civil disobedience protest and he called it hashtag sell weed like I'm white. Mm -hmm. And for the last couple of years, the, the authorities in New Jersey don't arrest me. Yeah. Um, why? I don't know. I've put plenty of evidence out there every day. <laughs> there's there's yeah. lots and lots of evidence that I violate the marijuana laws and I sell marijuana like I'm white. <laughs> and now that's that's that sounds racist to some people. It sounds uh, funny to others or radical. To me, it's effective. <laughs> You know, civil disobedience is effective. I'm basically engaged in civil disobedience. I feel like my life got ruined because of the weed laws, so I definitely want to capitalize off the weed laws as they're changing, and I'm finding that that's not how the system was being played out, and I just refuse to accept it. Um, I was trying to be an example to others, so I needed publicity and press about it, so I ensured I had publicity and press about it. Use the Internet, hashtagging and, you know, sharing things. Even hashtag NJ can't get 12. NJ can't get 12 is New Jersey can't get 12. Talking about a jury. Go ahead, prosecutors. Arrest me, charge me, indict me. Mm. And, then it's, and then it's my turn. And I don't think you can get 12 people to convict me of violating these laws that you would charge me with. Uh, whole jury nullification <laughs> argument. So yeah. I've always been very prominent in talking about jury nullification too. Mm -hmm. So if you Google jury notification, you'll find it. And that, that to me is also a form of civil disobedience. Like, go ahead, arrest me. Let's see if 12 of my peers <laughs> will agree with you that I should be in a cage for selling marijuana. Mm -hmm. Just like, just like the white guys. <laughs> and I don't know. It, it, I think my, I think I won there too, but, I think I won. We'll, we'll see. The world didn't end. The fight's not over. We'll see how it plays out. You know, I think, I think as legalization is coming to the state of New Jersey, I've kind of forced, uh, or had a, a part of the, the forced issue of social equity. When they start giving out licenses, I think a lot of minorities are going to get them now. If you'd asked me two years ago or three years ago, no, it wasn't even on a plate. And I think in the last three to five years, um, the push for social equity in this state, especially, um, I think has been pretty successful. 
Mm. We'll see when they actually give out the licenses and what happened. I know there's a lot of, there's still a lot in the air. Like, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm going to get a license. So am I biased? So I think the program is fine. It covers me. Um, no, that's not even the reason why. I think there's going to be a lot of guys just like me. Yeah. No, I don't think it's going to be me. There's going to be a lot of guys. A lot of, I, I see the application process um, is wide open. I think that there are opportunities. There are some people who aren't going to be able to fill out an application too. Um, but I believe people who have a business sense, a sense in them anyway, mm-hmm. have already explored different other means of businesses. Even a street hustler. Yeah. You can still add numbers really good. But anyway, these numbers, I mean, these, uh, these applications, the fact that we, that, that people have two and three months to put it together, um, I think is, a, is, a, is, is helpful and it doesn't cost a lot. Like that was the fear before. Mm. So just the fact that they lowered the price, at least theoretically, it's pretty much open to anybody and certain people are actually even going to get some type of, uh, um, say on a point system, you know, get a few points at the beginning. You know, who knows how it works out? But I think it's a lot better than it was going to be. And the things that I was talking about, things that you can find in the state that, that I talk about publicly, you know, about you know the corporations taking over. I think that we're getting ready to have a a a, a different look. The state of New Jersey is going to have a different look, and yeah a year or two than a lot of the rest of the states. Yeah, man. There's uh, well, quite a lot to unpack there. Uh, I think one point I do want to make that we might circle back to just for audience sort of continuity. Um, you've ran, uh, it's a restaurant now come dispensary, which I believe is, is it currently called The Joint? Opposite uh, City Hall. And is it is it Trenton? Yes. The state <clears throat> capital. The state capital in New Jersey, um, Trenton, New Jersey, directly across the street from City Hall is where I own a restaurant called The Joint, the NJ Weedman's Joint. I opened it with a, uh, a partner and my girlfriend, but at some point last year, she she moved on and opened her own place somewhere. But... Uh, uh, that's where we I've been for the last six years. The last three years I've been really openly um, pushing the line or crossing the line. And the fact that I'm in the state capitol across the street from government building, City Hall, was activism at, at his at his highest. <laughs> you know, I don't have to pick up a sign and take a bus and show up somewhere and hold the sign. I'm right there. been right there for the last six years. Um, when I said I was going to sell weed like I'm white, mm-hmm. I'm in the state capital. Um, Trenton, New Jersey, I don't know if you know the, the history on Trenton, New Jersey. Trenton, New Jersey, I mean, it's still the Revolutionary War. It was the first battle that the colonists won over England. Well, really, they had Russian, they had Russian soldiers there. I mean, not Russian, German German soldiers there, Hessian soldiers were there. And the colonists, their first victory was in Trenton, New Jersey. And if you Google the Battle of Trenton, it always comes up as all about, all about our, 
Sorry about that. All about our Revolutionary War battle. Mm-hmm. Well, I started calling my fight in the city of Trenton for equal marijuana rights, we'll say, um, the Battle of Trenton too. <laughs> and I took used hashtags. I, I've got a nice big image of me holding a slingshot like I'm David, government building there, and all these different state officials that I beat. <laughs> I have that on. I have that on the side of my building, and I call that the Battle of Trenton too. And again, publicity for the public, activism. I mean, you can be an activist and sit in your and sit in your room and talk to your three friends if you want, mm-hmm. or you can get out there and let as many people see and hear you as you can. And that's kind of what I always did. Made a point to make the press. Made a point to put things on the internet. Mm-hmm. and use my real life situation to, to, to activate. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and the fact that you're from, from England, I've always been a big fan of William Penn. And, and at least his, arg- his, his jury nullification arguments, we'll say, his, his, his right to a fair trial, right to witnesses, and those arguments that he had presented in England before he came to America. Mm-hmm. And yes, with anything now on the internet, you can find all kinds of dirt and things on to people too. But his, 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 he's, he's like the godfather of jury nullification in the Western world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was always a fan of William Penn. So the fact that William Penn went to say this city, the town center, I can't remember what it was called in England in uh, London. It's a town square somewhere. And that's where he did his protests and got arrested and the whole nine yards and fought for all these different things. He fought for freedom of religion, for instance. He fought for uh, 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 your Sixth Amendment right to witnesses and to face your accusers and all that. All that evolved over into American English common law. Uh, and our our legal systems are based a lot on his, his case in England. Mm-hmm. So anyway, knowing that and being like a, a kind of nerdy history reader, I always knew that. So I, I kind of used William Penn also in my open court fights and always would represent myself and always would, you know, argue certain, certain points of view, um, which were constitutional arguments. I, you know, not even being, a, not, not about weed, not about yeah. pothead. So I always attracted those attention to those constitutional type of people too and followed my jury nullification arguments, mm-hmm. which also which also helped my weed arguments all the time too, because this is what I'm fighting for. People were like, oh, this guy calls himself weed man. But he's got a pretty good legal case. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe really? I'm rambling on and on and on. No, no, man. And but yeah, I think highlighting there is that the argument for, I would say, the true liberation of cannabis, which what I'm sort of arguing for is descheduling de- of it, the removal of it from misuse of drugs regulations around the world. So it's the same as sugar, tobacco, and alcohol, which kill infinitely more than all of the illicit drugs combined. Yet we have regulations and systems of governance in place, and there's you can pretty much fair play. You can get into the market 
you can't establish a new conglomerate or monopoly off uh, from grassroots, but you can still get into the in certain industries. And I think that's what I want to see within cannabis is true equity is not a pay to play system is not restriction based on class, based on ethnicity, race, geographical location, or any other arbitrary restriction. And I think that what you were talking about before with, um, talking about Rosa Parks, about the participation of remaining on the bus. That is the biggest form of activism. I think most people now in legal regions are forgetting. They've kind of gone, oh, well, the bus has stopped. It's gone. I've gotten off already. But you can get you can get back on. Do, do you know what I mean? I feel a lot of people have, were placated by legalization. And one of the things that really perked my ears up, like I said about you a few years ago, which is what drew me to you, was that you were going to vote against jersey's legalization and i i realized a couple of years ago that when my country moves towards legalization it's more than likely i'm going to have to stand against it because what they'll create will be a bastardization it will whitewash my culture my history and my heritage it will further criminalize the legacy market further demonize the people i want to see growing cannabis in exploring its potential to create profit culture community you know and so yeah yeah so so a lot of people didn't understand my no now obviously i'm down for legalization i'm a legalizer right um but that particular way that they were they're, the vote was and and i still have a whole bunch of issues with it too but the vote was it was like how should i put it they were asking the state the, the residents of new jersey to vote for legalization and you're asking for a constitutional amendment to allow it. Okay, no problem. But they didn't write a bill out. They didn't write the law. You didn't know what you were voting for. It was a blank check. Now, you're just voting for legalization, okay? Now, I already knew exactly what the certain politicians had already lined up to happen. Right after they vote no, this is the bill that they're going to present. Basically, another a bill that they couldn't get before. They're going to represent it as the legalization laws now. And I was opposed to all that. Now, some of the things that, that when, I, when I came out against it, I got a lot of interviews from a lot of reporters. Sometimes they would use my quotes and quote me. Sometimes they would just use my arguments in their stories <laughs> um, without actually quoting me. I steered, I steered quite a few reporters and journalists into presenting some social equity arguments in the state of New Jersey. I can point to articles, I can point to reporters, and I can see quotes, and I know they're mine without being me, which I'm fine. I was totally fine with it. Um, but the social equity aspect of it, the uh, little guy part of it, like I said, the state has actually tried at this point to put that in there. We're really not there yet. We'll know in a few months, but they've had, they did try. Um, I believe, how should I say it? I believe what would have happened a few years ago, it would just really would have been corporate cannabis. That's what would have happened. So I do believe this whole social equity, and social equity is not just bringing a bunch of black people in it, it's going to bring in a lot of white guys, white women that did not, they weren't, they weren't rich. They're not super, had a lot of equity either. I was in prison with white guys for the same thing. You know, it was just, it was just more of us. It wasn't the fact that 
you know, the, the, they, the, the white guys don't get arrested for weed too, because they did. Um, and I know there's a lot of white guys who want to get, that aren't billionaires or millionaires who want to get in this industry too. And I think the social equity part, just the fact that it made them lower prices and make it more inclusive, it would include them guys too. So I think there's a lot of uh, not, there's a lot of non-minorities, white guys, that that are going to benefit from social equity arguments too. In the fact that, like I said, that, you know, at one point it was just about these corporations and these corporations were going to get everything. And the social equity arguments have, have changed all that, lower things, which will include these guys too, even though the look of it is it's going to let a whole bunch of black people sell weed. <laughs> That's the look of it from the outside, but no. Oh. I, mean, I think that one of the things that I was looking at with the, that I appreciate about Jersey was micro licenses. So I think it was production or basic sales of less than a thousand pounds a month. And I thought the, 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 the pricing on that seemed about all right for collective um sort of fundraising for communities so one of the things that I, I have enjoyed if not been slightly frustrated by watching each of the individual states i think we're now on 19 um and reading the individual sort of models and watching them progress because colorado versus washington the first two ago washington didn't get to go with homegrown they went with a different taxing structure as well that meant actually less of their money went to lower incomes so I think some of the northern uh, counties of Colorado benefited quite heavily from uh, from this the model without needing there to be too much of an inbuilt social equity. Whereas then, as it's now evolved into places like Illinois, the idea was there, but then the execution is the opposite. So I was looking at Chicago's distribution of um, of dispensaries, and there's still no black or minority owned dispensaries, despite the fact I think the city's uh, black population is thirty something percent compared to a national average of thirteen. And then even in re- regions where the same sort of thing occurs uh, in social deprivation, so not in race, the same thing happens. So basically, kind of no matter what the rules that they're putting in, it looks like from an outsider to me. They're, they still find a way to win because they're still the ones who write the rules, as you were saying before. The, yeah. they, they get to argue in chambers, or oh, change that to the wording of this so the exact lettering means that in two years we get to jump into that loophole. You know what I mean? It still feels like uh, we're being given something back rather than we're taking it back. Do you know what I mean? Right. Well, you know, one of the things that I argue too, and it sounds radical to some people, I'm like, okay, think about this. Our politicians, shoot, I'm sorry. I thought I turned this ringer off already once. There we go. Our, our, polit- our politicians waged a war, a drug war. And that's both the Democrats and the Republicans. They waged a war against people. They called it a war on drugs. And some people were damaged in that war. Some people were in prison. Some people are still there, damaged societies, screwed up whole neighborhoods. Anyway, this is what was waged openly and then they lost at least to weed i feel like i was a victim of that war i was uh but you know what i also feel i won and people like me won there never was going there never would have been a day that marijuana cannabis uh disappeared and the government could say hey 
we won our war against we. That day was never going to happen. Uh, it was a failed effort, failed war, and it damaged a whole lot of people. I was damaged. Lots of people like me were damaged. It was a real war. Well, in most wars, most fights, the winner gets to divide up the spoils of war, right? Mm -hmm. Come on, man. I mean, I can't think of a war where the losers <laughs> still get to divvy up everything. <laughs> no. Yeah. So that was a public stance I took, too, that, no, hey, my side won. <laughs> we won this war on drugs. Guys like Senator Skatari in New Jersey, who's a politician, he's been in the weed industry or the weed legalization argument for a long time, but he's still a Democrat. He's still part of the war machine that destroyed us. He's still like, he, okay, so you realize you lost and you're trying to negotiate a surrender to guys like me. <laughs> That's how I look at it. We won. That's another reason why I refuse to stop selling weed. Hey, dude, <laughs> I, we, I won. Like, no, now, now the losers get to do it. No, the losers get to decide who's going to. So in a layman's point of view, that's also kind of what, how I felt about things that I, that I want. So why do I got to listen to all these rules and jump through these hoops and get this license and get that license and following your mandates when you lost? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you lost. So again, I think I could say these arguments to 12 people. Mm -hmm. Like, go ahead, arrest me, charge me. This is my form of activism. Let me have it. We on pen trial. Let me talk to the jury. And you know, so anyway, long story. You, you know, I sat here and I started smoking weed, man. I love smoking weed. I do like know my 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 interviews high sometimes. But sometimes I get long-winded, or if you don't ask the right questions quick enough, I'm gonna <laughs> on and on and on. <laughs> no, you, you keep it good, man. You're keeping it good. I'm just, I'm, I'm letting you flow. I'm letting you flow. Um, so I'll jump to a couple of the points I wanted to sort of dis to discuss. Is at one point you ran for, is it, is it Senate in in New Jersey? And there was an incident with, uh, was it Get Jesus? There was, there was a whole oh, ish, issue there. I was, I was reading, I wanted to ask you about that because one of the yeah. things I'm, I'm interested in in uh, getting your perspective on, I know you've obviously given that statement at the start about uh, Rastafarianism, but whether you found more persecution, because you obviously run temple spaces as well, more religious persecution or more racial persecution, like because obviously both of them include weed. So which, like, I was just wondering where you kind of, got hit hardest. It, that was like a one-time incident, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll explain. As part of my activism since 1998, I run for numerous offices. I never expect to win. I make no effort to win. <laughs> I just get my name on the ballot. And strategically, I'm a candidate. So when I talk to the press, I'm a candidate. You know, I get my, you know, I get a couple thousand votes and stuff like that, but I never put any money into it. I, you know, it was just my way of protesting. And the one is one particular year. I, I don't remember. It was 2006, I believe. Mm. So I've been doing it for, I've been doing it since 1998. I've consistently run for office most of the time every year. I'll skip a year every once in a while. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but, you know, like this year, I'm not on the ballot or anything this year, but I think that was Senate race in 2006. And 
so so all the candidates get certain ad space, certain um, um, you know space in the newspaper at some point. And I wrote this big thing. I talked about religion and I this and I I I, I dropped religious rights in it. I don't really remember exactly. You caught me off guard with this, but I hadn't thought about this, but that was 15 years ago, 16 right, years like, ago. Wow. But, but yeah, so, so whatever I wrote triggered somebody. Somebody who lived near me was offended at something I wrote. That's what I believe. Hmm. Or I was talking about weed. I was talking about weed in a religious sense of the word you know i brought up rastafarianism i brought up religion i wrote i wrote whatever i wrote i remember i wrote something mm-hmm. and like three days later on my house was written um get jesus like whatever i was pushing they thought was anti-jesus or something i don't know um mm-hmm. so it just kind of like uh that was yeah that was a one-off thing i mean i i Obviously, I have I, mean, I have family members who are really religious and thought that my act, my my constantly talking about about marijuana was somehow sinful or something, or they didn't believe in the use of drugs, and you know, and I've gotten that opinion from that side. But so what? Those are just opinions, and I just knew where they were coming from. They're coming from the religious side, so I never really felt like a, a persecution by religious people, though, um, for my arguments about marijuana. But I've heard their I've heard a few, but that was a one-time incident that I actually had, you know, like, what if they threw a firebomb instead? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what if, what if they had chosen? Some, so that rattled me mm-hmm. and, it ra- and it rattled, it rattled my kids and my fat, my kids still all remember that incident. Mm-hmm. You know, they all remember that they were little, we come outside. They, I didn't even find it. My, my, uh, my wife was, like would take the kids to school or take them somewhere in the morning, every morning and bam. That, so nine o'clock in the morning, eight o'clock in the morning, uh, uh, one of the kids was running back in the house and says, dad, dad, you know, whatever. I go outside. I'm still in my shorts and everything. I'm like, what the F? Mm. You know? Yeah. So, but that was a one time, one time incident. Um, I, th- I, th- I think I've had, uh, religious people opposed to some of the things I, I I've talked about, but I, I never took that as, as any type of religious persecution. It's just mm. in line with, with their, with their, with their thinking, they're resisting something that they think is wrong, which is cool. They have every right to do that. Um, but on the racial side, of, I, I feel like I've been a victim of, of, of the, the racial institutions that, Go on, like for instance, there's a lot of statistics that you can people can cite those statistics that three times more black people go go to prison for weed than white people in the state of New Jersey, for instance, right? There's also other statistics like eight times more black men who have their first charge go to prison than others. You know, like there's other people, you can get arrested for something that's prisonable, but you get a plea deal, you get a bargain, you get promotion, you get a, a, a paperwork or something, and you don't actually go to prison for it. Mm-hmm. And then there's these other ones that the first time you get arrested, first time you're charged with something prisonable, you're going to prison and you're just marched into the prison. It's basically, it's, a, it's set up that way. And the first time I was arrested, I went to prison. So I'm one of those statistics too. 
which just brought out the anger. Like, you know, it just made me mad, especially if I knew the statistics. I understood what was going on to me. So these are the things that, that upset me and made me speak out, speak out. And again, the, the wacky things I was saying in the 90s <laughs> are the right things in 2021. I actually haven't changed too much of what I said. If you go Google things I said in 1998, they, they flat out apply to what I'm doing in 2021. Like I'm, nothing's changed for me. The world changed around me. Yeah. You know, and I won. And guys like me won. Mm-hmm. And that's why another reason why I just resist the way mm. our politicians are planning on handing out legalization <laughs> after they put money in their pocket, then they get to pass out how how it works. And I don't know resistance. I think yeah. what, what are they going to do with the legacy market? Guys like me who just refuse to stop whether we're licensed or not. We just move into the next iterations of it. I'm calling um, what's happening in America, Canada, and other places Prohibition 2.0 because it's they've just changed the goalposts. They've allowed certain classes, certain swaths of sections of society to be able to participate through licensing. So then rather than it being a misdemeanor of, okay, you caught me, I've got five plants, I didn't have the magic piece of paper saying it was okay, rather than being tre- the, treated the same way as a driving offense or a speeding offense, and they're being very civil and no hands-on, they, they would still take my door off. They would still pin me to the floor. They would violently go through my possessions. They would throw me in a cage. You know, They would go through all of this because I don't have a piece of paper that says I'm allowed. So yeah. they're not creating, for me, a system of access. I think it was, uh, was it Jack Harrow who said, until we can all grow it and use it, it's, it's not legal. So in... I've been doing a lot of research. I write a lot of blogs and I uh, write for Weed World magazine, a few others. And so I, I read a lot of what's going on in the world. And the narrative I'm seeing globally is the same thing I'm seeing locally in the regions where it's legalized. And it's almost like a form of localized and global colonialism. So it's the re-emergence of old institutional power. So it feels like, especially in Europe, the reason we're not moving as fast as the Americas, North and South, and even in certain circumstances, parts of Asia, is because these old powerhouse institutions of big tobacco, of pharma, of alcohol, of oil, are trying to move over their interest to the other potential sides of, of the plant, of the industry. And so as they're trying to affirm their generational wealth, they're kind of slowing down and it feels like from the outside looking in America is this Petri dish, this collection of just individual models. So at the minute I'm looking at East versus West and the West coast is collapsing. Oregon's production is through the goddamn roof. They've got cartel modern slavery on the border of Oregon, California. You've got states of national emergency being declared. You've got sheriffs basically being like, we don't know what the hell to do. The court systems are giving up the, the, dispensaries are getting robbed left, right, and center in San Francisco and other regions at the minute with armed gangs just going night after night after night. And it's created this this violent uprising system that's completely disrupted um, people's ability to participate in the market fairly because, as you said, they've just created this hardened division between the accepted legacy market, the ones that were allowed to transition over, that were bought out, that were basically the venture capitalists with all their millions went around to the expos, to the shows, to the communities and went, we'll have you, you'll work for us, you come for us, you come for us. And anyone that was left was demonized. They're the devil. 
and they were created as the enemy to the new legalization. They're the new criminals. So like I said, the, that moving of the goalposts means that I'm hoping that because Jersey's still in its infancy, those goalposts mean that you're in the middle of it. I, I really do hope that. But I, from what I'm seeing, like I said, on the West Coast, it's a pay-to-play boys club and you need tens of millions to start, let alone sort of get going, you know? Right. Um, well, that's what I'm saying. Over over the last couple of years, I've kind of, kind of become the face of the legacy market. And I'm basically saying we're not going anywhere. I'm not sure how I'm not sure how how it's gonna work out. I think they've moved, the goalpost has moved. We're included now. We'll we'll see how far it actually goes. As far as uh like I said, they're making rules and these rules are still excluding a lot of people. And here's another thing, like I told you, not only did we win the, the war, mm-hmm. imagine this in urban neighborhoods. An urban neighborhood is never a shortage of weed. It's been like that for my entire life. From the time I was a little kid to now, there's always weed in the hood. There's always weed in the neighborhoods. So now legalization comes and what? The hood gets excluded. There's always, there's always a weed guy. There's always a weed man. There's always a weed woman in every urban community. And I was a coast-to-coast truck driver for years. And knowing that, Man, I used to leave out of the house in New Jersey with no weed or just enough weed to make it to Chicago. When I got to Chicago, you know, I'd deliver my load or whatever. I'd look for weed or whatever, and I'd grab me a bag of weed, keep on moving across the country if that's what I was doing or, or whatever. There are certain urban areas all the way across the country. After a while, Des Moines, Iowa even had a black neighborhood. I could go park my truck and end up in a neighborhood and buy weed. Salt Lake City, I did, did it in Salt Lake City too. I just went to the Indian community there. And I got a Native American community, to be correct. <laughs> and got oh, we'll get weed in Salt Lake City. Like you can buy weed anywhere, especially in 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 urban neighborhoods. There's always a weed guy. So now here we have legalization coming, and all these corporate type people are coming in and gonna be like, they're the only ones gonna be allowed to sell weed. Mm-hmm. Like they discovered this weed industry, this called this cannabis industry, like. Yeah, what goes on in the suburbs is a lot different than what goes on in urban neighborhoods. And urban neighborhoods always have weed, always has had weed. There's not shortages of weed. Maybe you don't like getting it from this guy or that guy, but you know what? You could get it from this guy or that guy or your cousin or your brother or somebody got weed, right? It's always been that way. Mm. And now as legalization's coming, they're going to be licensing people not from that neighborhood to sell weed. <laughs> yeah. But they're still illegal. And, I, and that's what I was opposed to was happening with the way they were writing the bills on legalization. I'm down with legalization. I wasn't down with that bill and that law and how they were going to dispense what they called legalization. It really is corporatization. <laughs> you know, it's sort of commodifying a community. So it's going, okay, you can buy from weed and, uh, from us and consume cannabis from us, but you're not allowed to, to grow, access it yourself. This is something I discovered when I, I was in, uh, I spent a night in Fresno in California. And this is when I discovered firsthand about dry counties and how certain regions can opt out. And I, I noticed in Jersey, it's, it's a couple of hundred of the, the sort of regional territories have already opted out of it. And I discovered in Fresno, it's a population of like 900,000 people 
majority Hispanic and black, and they had obviously no dispensaries. The vast majority of people were in rented accommodation. And when I looked at the rules, it said that the consumption of cannabis could only be consumed in an, your home you own. So if you rented a property, it wasn't considered your own home. So yeah, there was so it's so that, kick you out because you. Yeah. Weed. <laughs> yeah, so the, so the language of it was so fucked up. So I had to drive out of county, go back to a motel, and then basically what I did the whole time in America was some motels. If I got you got caught, you just paid two hundred fifty dollars. You paid the smoking charge. You didn't care if it was cannabis or tobacco. It was a smoking charge. So then going th- sort of through that, really discovered this this discrepancy of this two tiered system that's been created. And I think that no place is this more emblematic than than on the internet than the fact that. As you say, we're, we're criminalized in the real world for how we interact with cannabis, but then we're censored and still deemed as enemies of the state when interacting on social media, when building our own platforms, when even discussing certain narratives, we're expected to, to talk in a certain way to, in order to get airtime. If you say something that's controversial or challenging, unless it's challenging to their narrative in a way they want to publicize that, they'll just silence you. Right. So there's uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is a, a campaign that kind of you're on now. You, you mentioned the sell weed uh, like I'm white. Uh, another thing that you want at the minute is I, I saw a press release of yours where you were saying that you now see Instagram, which I suppose by extension is now meta, Facebook's meta whole thing that it's going through right now. It's changes um, as an equal enemy to the FBI or the DEA. Could you sort of explain that a bit more? All right. Before the war on drugs, I mean, you look, if you're openly selling weed or you were selling weed, selling drugs, your biggest enemy would be like the DEA, which I've had two visits by the DEA, actually three, but two times they put handcuffs on me. All right. So now the world changed. And the FBI and the CIA and the, 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 the DA could care less about weed. Like, really, like, our law enforcement agencies really have toned down when it comes to weed in New Jersey, in, 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 in America. Um, the DEA is not making big, giant marijuana busts anywhere or anything. Well, anyway, Instagram, and I like Instagram. I like Facebook, too. Um, but Instagram has a big blaring hole in in social media. And, you know, I know other people have complained about it too, but especially celebrities. I, I think, I, I, you know, at some point I have to say, I guess I have become a celebrity. So I have all these people who just fake me online. They're just fake weed mans everywhere. And no matter what I do to, to, to Instagram, there's nothing I can do to for them to help me or to get them on the phone or anything. And these people are faking me to the point where they're ripping people up. You know, while I was talking to you just now, someone sent me an email that they got ripped off by my boys. This is what they say, by my boys. Like, what? But people are using my image. They're setting up fake pages all over Instagram, and they're selling weed. Supposedly, they're scamming. They're just scamming people. And people are sending them money. And then there's a percentage of people realize right away they got scammed using my face. And then other people think I scammed them. Yeah. You know what I mean? And 
I usually don't know that someone got scammed until they're mad at me. Like, I don't know. Mm. Like, obviously, like this guy just emailed me just a few minutes ago saying yeah. that I scammed him. I, I ripped him off. I don't know where he's at, where he's from, you know? Yeah. And some of them show up at my place at my, and they want their money back. And then if they don't get their money back, then they want something in return. And I'm like, dude, I'm not just going to give you anything. Even if they realize they got ripped off, they still somehow think that I should help them out and I should give them money. I should whatever. And then that even gets some mad, you know, some guys, you know, like, dude, I, I had nothing to do. Why would you send somebody $2,600 to some email? Like, some goofy non me type of cash app yeah uh, or or a paypal account that doesn't even have my name on it would have some other goofy thing and they would send the money and then they'd be mad at me when they realized they got scammed mm-hmm. and, and, and and then some like i said there's even a percentage of them even after they realize they got scammed they uh think i should help them or give them and i feel bad for them I'm sorry you got ripped off 2,600 bucks, but no, I'm not going to give you two pounds of my marijuana <laughs> to cover it. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, like, no. Right? And they get mad. So anyway, or, and people get mad in America is a dangerous thing because there's like 400 million guns here. Um, and it's so easy. I know people have been shot and killed for less than 400 bucks. So, you know, people are getting ripped off for thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. And I can remember being worried about the DEA coming to do something to me. Right now, I'm not worried about the DEA coming to do something for, to me for weed, small amounts. By their terms, what I do is such a small amount, they look ridiculous to arrest mm-hmm. me for weed. You know? Um, but on the other hand, I'm worried about some scammer, some some scammer's victim showing up mad at me, you know? And randomly, I have no knowledge that this argument is coming and, and it's happened a couple of times. And I don't know, I think I'm more scared of that than a DEA raid. <laughs> so that's kind of what I was saying when I was yeah. talking and I was talking about it like, dude, like, this is crazy. And they're like, you can't get Instagram on the phone. Uh, uh, I've had my pages taken down and then a fake page appeared that looks just like me. Mm-hmm. And Instagram's like, ah, you know, if you look at the terms of service, it's not, you know, whatever. I think it endangers my life. I think it has all these people thinking I just ripped them off. People think you ripped them off, especially if they're stupid enough already. I shouldn't even say it like that, but if they're already dim with it enough to give some anonymous person money on the internet, then they may not be witty enough to understand they got ripped off and not to come bring that shit at me, but they do. And some people are just, like I said, listen, my grandfather got murdered over $167. Okay, so these, uh, you know, and these guys are getting ripped. People, they really are getting ripped off, Mm -hmm. right? And there's nothing I can do about it. 
I, I can count last year at one point I was watching this one particular Instagram page because everybody was hitting me up saying they were getting ripped off from that, from that page. And I kept on reporting and reporting it, but people would say he got me for $2,600. That was a common number, $2,600, mm-hmm. 1300, 750. He was selling quarter pounds and pounds. And people all over the internet were seeing me saying, sell weed like I'm white, I'm this, I'm that, I'm selling weed, fuck you, ah, selling weed. And they would put me on fake pages and people were believing that I was selling weed online too. Yeah. And they were buying it. And I don't know, there's nothing I could do about it except for bitch and scream. So recently I I got some press and publicity about it because I said, this endanger my life too. It's not just that they're ripping off people who are fans of mine, but there are people who are mad <laughs> and they're really, I understand they're mad, mad, but they should be just as mad at Instagram for allowing that to happen too. Mm-hmm. So, and there's no way I can communicate with Instagram. If I, if I said the wrong hateful shit, I get my page taken down or something would happen, but there's really nothing going on for people who are just impersonating you yeah. or, or any of that. And even things like trying to get your blue mark. So I can at least say, listen, if it doesn't come from this page with this blue mark on it, then it's not me. You know what I mean? Like, I, I wish I could, I, there's, but I don't even have a blue mark. And then my page has been taken down before and I had to restart all over because, because a faker <laughs> would get my page down, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's incredible. And how does, I don't know, on Instagram, you know, their policy is, oh, well, you agreed to our terms of service. Our terms of service said any fucking thing in the world could happen to you and not our fault. (laughs) So you can't even sue because they said, Hey, anything could happen, but straight impersonating you online straight. Like, like there's ways me as a lay person, uh, 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 you should, you should be able to like log in somehow, maybe use your same IP address or something. You can't use these other, you know, like, I don't, I don't know. I'm not, you know, I'm not a Zuckerberg or what's that guy's name, uh, uh, Adam Masari, uh, for, uh, Instagram. I'm not those guys, but they have teams of guys. If that was their mission, that they would stop that type of stuff from happening, the scams, the whole total scam world. They, it's like, you, if you want to create a scam, just put it on Instagram. <laughs> Somebody on Instagram will fall for it. With you know, this, Instagram allows it. It seems to be. I mean, at the minute I can think of three big European seed companies that I'm not going to name that are currently promoting crypto scams. They're, they're on their timeline. They're in their stories linked back to the same hacked thing. It's it's We're, we're in an interesting time of almost Wild West where the technology that we're provided and the gatekeepers that are supposed to govern it are only ever one step ahead of those scammers. So the scammers then come up with a new way around it and a new loophole. So they're jumping on top and and playing this constant game of catch up because they're forever chasing profit and interaction and attention over their actual intention of what their product could do. So there's obviously been the big scandals of the damage the uh what instagram and facebook is doing to society at large to individuals kind of self-confidence their worldview skewing them politically um you know really creating these these really sinister echo chambers and 
you, you mentioned the blue tick verification before, but that that doesn't really give anything because then once one of those accounts is kind of there, it almost gives more of an incentive for people to create scam pages and there will always be those kind of scammers. So there needs to be more protection there, more of a, an open mechanism, like you say, for accountability, that if you are a public figure, if you are someone who is obviously and legally connected to that uh, identity, you should be able to own that identity in the, the digital realm in the same way you would in the public sphere. Like if somebody dressed up as NJ Weedman and was wandering around Jersey trying to sell weed to people on the street, you wouldn't get done for that. They'd go and arrest that guy. But because we're in a digital realm and right. you, you live as NJ Weedman, anyone can put on that facade. And until there is some distinguishing um, line between that, like you say, you are at risk of any comeback for that because they don't know where the fake NJ Weed Man lives. They don't know what territory or region. I mean, I'm in the UK right now, and I could literally my Instagram banned page goes on for about two minutes of solid scrolling of fake accounts. Honestly, yeah. even now, probably half of my followers still on Instagram right now are just scam accounts because they keep coming and going. I watch my numbers fluctuate by sometimes hundreds a day as people come in and out of these accounts and then Instagram has a clear out every now and then and it'll ban a load. And it's, it, it, it's crap because that's just on the personality, the persona celebrity side of it, as it were on the brand side of it. If you are the, if connected to the right, let's call them cartel because that's what they are. But if you are the right subsidiary or a right associate of a certain conglomerate or a uh, big player, you will have no banning at all. You will be able to advertise infinitum, show up on millions of timelines. Your products will be, you know, proudly displayed. Whereas in people are getting their accounts scrutinized for just showing cannabis, for even sometimes showing just a leaf. Right. So if you, how do you find uh, sort of shadow banning? And you obviously said before you've lost your account a couple of times, but do you find that you get penalized for the way you use the platform? Yes. I am absolutely settled, man. I can't buy any ads. I can't do any of those type of things. Mm -hmm. uh, even, even as me running for political office, for instance, running for political office, if it was just talking about a newspaper or something, I'd have some type of uh, protection under First Amendment and the government and all that. You know, this newspaper couldn't write about that news guy, guy give him editorial without giving me editorial. You know, you can't use a, you can't, let these guys have TV commercials and you're not allowed to have TV. Like you right? but on the internet, that does happen. Anybody who advocates for legalization of weed is shadow banned, is cut off, is limited. Mm -hmm. Um little guys, sure, big corporations come in under their corporate umbrella and they say all kinds of stuff and they're <laughs> they're not banned, like you said. Oh um, yeah. so just me running for office, and like I said, I, I used to use I constantly use me running for office as a form of protest to get certain things out. Um, so I watched in the nineties, every newspaper had to bow down. I'd win all my arguments, uh, you know, not that the newspapers were bad, but different things. I got, I got in, I got into debates. I did all these things because I was a candidate, um, a legitimate candidate, even though I had a quirky arguments and things like that, they thought, but I was still, I still did the, the I dotted my eyes and crossed my T's and, Got on the and got on the ballot, and there are certain things that would would, would work, would would have to that have to have. But now the world didn't change. The first time I ran for office, for instance, 1998, I was the only candidate that ran for Congress in the state of New Jersey at that time that had a website. 
nobody had they didn't nobody took the internet seriously at the time and and all right so so now it's just everything's on the internet everything uh, you know it, sometimes you know it's not even worth it to put things on on tv if you want to put a commercial on just get it on the internet get it all over the place let it go viral make something quirky do something and and, and, and get everybody in your town sharing it it works better, works better than spending a half a million bucks at Comcast. And if you don't have the money, then so be it. So anyway, everything's on the internet now, unless you talk about weed and they kind of restrict it. And there's actually probably a couple other topics that, that they do that to, too. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah, so, so basically as the internet has evolved to me, it's also became this big, huge place that censors you too, even though mm -hmm. I've had a lot of success getting famous basically is really through the internet more than, um, you know, spending a whole bunch of money. Um, so, so I have my goods and bads, but right now this particular press release you, you're reading about me calling Instagram worse than, um, worse than the DEA because times have changed. And that's just one of the bad things about it to me. I suppose, like you were saying before, that if the DEA or whoever comes for you and you end up in a court, you can then go to trial by jury and you face 12 of your peers. Who are your peers at Instagram? As you said before, you can't get on the phone. I mean, we watched this during the big purge that happened a few years ago when YouTube, Facebook, Instagram went a bit crazy. They cut off some accounts with millions of subs. They took out some huge names around the world. And then some of them just appeared back, but only certain ones and only ones that then so happened to be useful to brands. They happened to have certain partnerships and paid sponsorships and they gained reciprocal traffic between certain accounts. So it was, again, beneficial to that system. And it feels like a big thing I've been discussing recently, and I did a, an hour-long presentation at the UK's largest cannabis event recently at Product Earth, talking about... Um, uh, corporate co-option in saying that they knew they were going to lose the war on drugs. So what they've now done is gone, okay, we can't eradicate drugs. That drug-free world promise we gave in the UN in the 80s, never going to happen. You know, Reagan and everyone else can turn over in the grave. This is not going to come to fruition. But what we can do is we can control the economics of drugs. So rather than there being liquidity and, and cash and, and assets owned by the enemies of the state, those that are currently oppressed by the state, they could, they could then make them consumers and customers. And then so further asset strip them, strip them take more of that while uh, their wealth, while giving them the illusion of freedom. And I feel like social media now has given us that perfect veil. So most of us then look at it and go, look, there's cannabis everywhere. But they won't then, as you said, they're only ever seeing one narrative on cannabis, which is this corporate whitewashed, Weed is only good when we produce it. If you produce it, it's dangerous and bad. But you know, you really enjoy our stuff, but don't don't do that other stuff. And there is this this two tiered narrative that is appearing. Like saying, you spoke of before about the legacy market. We're just going to become. I don't, I don't want to use the word, but effectively terrorists. I can think that they will move to a point of going, we have offered you every opportunity to take part in the system. You can be a medical consumer. You can be an adult consumer as long as you buy from us. You can have your little social gathering as long as it's limited to this amount and you don't make this money. And there's no real participation or profit share in the system. It's the illusion of freedom. It is that defined prohibition 2.0. 
Yes, man. You know, you know, you you really you really hit the note, hit hit it right there. I mm. I find I agree with everything you said. I absolutely agree with it all. Um, as as legalization comes, there's going to be a lot of people who are still going to be they're just going to be demonized because they don't fit the new uh, the new legal corporate structured distribution system that they're going to set up. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. Uh, So what do you think, if at all, is kind of an anecdote to that, an antidote, sorry, because a lot of us and a lot of people I've spoken to, not just on the podcast, but I guess personally over the years in different regions around the world, is well, that I, home, home grow is kind of the cure to that? I'm an aficionado of, of jury nullification and civil disobedience. I think if there are thousands of people who just said, you know what, I'm going to sell weed or I'm going to grow my own weed and Mm-hmm. Like I really believe that that would work better than constantly asking the politicians for it. If we started telling them, you know, I, I say that I, I'm pretty much openly doing what I'm doing in New Jersey, but there are others and I applaud them too. Um, but if there were thousands, then what would the government do? What could they do? Mm-hmm. What would the politicians be able to do? Just write the laws around us? No. They have to redraw the lines and put it, include us. And I think that's the biggest key. I really do think jury nullification type arguments, civil disobedience will work to a mm-hmm. point if it can, if you can get people, lots of people to engage and join. I think what I've done is left a nice little blueprint. You know, maybe it's wrong. It's not for everybody. But then there was others that could use my little blueprint for mm-hmm. other. So I've made a point to put it out there and show it. And that question, yeah, that's how. Mm-hmm. That's that's my line of thinking. You know, yeah. and I know there's other means and other ways and all that. But my line of thinking is this: this would this would work if there were lots of people who took this route and forced legalization to to include them. Mm-hmm. Do people like them? You know, just just say two hundred people in Chicago decided that you know they just had this whole big thing and legalization came and me and my family took this hit during the war. That family member went to prison. This family that changed my whole neighborhood. Mister Johnny, who used to be the football coach, got arrested, so we ain't had no football coach. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it really went all over the place, right? What if? A thousand people in Chicago, a thousand minorities, a thousand lower income black white people just said, you know what? No, we're going to open our own little weed store right here on the corner. And we're going to continue to get our weed from the black market like we've been getting it for decades anyway. Mm-hmm. And what would the politicians do? What could they do if if a, if a hundred of them did it? Mm-hmm. Not, you know, and, and and when you say you went looking through the Chicago uh Real estate, and as an outsider of the business, the can of business, and as an outsider, this is what you saw. You saw that here's a city that has 30% um, African-Americans, but then like 0% ownership in this new industry that that just until recently, 
you were a victim of, <laughs> or you fell victim for, 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 for being a part of it. So what if a thousand black people start selling weed? Now, I know there's a same famous person who spent a lot of time in Chicago who talked, who was able to get a thousand people at a, at meetings. So I'm not going to go there right now. Um, but you know, what if you get a thousand people in the Chicago area said, you know what, a thousand minorities said, you know, what? we're, we're here by opening this dispensary right here on this street. We're opening that. And this one's opening the one there. And that one's open there. What if all the barbershops decided to announce that they were now going to not only cut hair, but they're going to distribute marijuana mm -hmm. openly. Now, a lot of them already do. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this is already the industry that's in the neighborhood. You know, there's a neighborhood industry in, in all these cities. Um, you know, remember I told you that as I was a coast to coast truck driver, traveling the country, traveling the world in my truck, like that's what I chose to do for a couple of years. That I had a truck that made money. I was way where I lived my living, but it was also for a way for me to see the country and roll around. When a rich guy I can just take a tour around the country for three years. But I bought a tractor trailer and that was half of the job of the tractor trailer was to take me places to see things. You know, the other half was to use to make money and send it home. But I, I drove on a road to see the whole country and went everywhere. Um, and I never had a problem in cities getting marijuana. I just parked my truck so my truck wasn't on the scene and I'd walk, I'd take a taxi. I'd, I'd, I'd originally park my truck at the local mall, go in the mall and then start talking to people and find a what neighborhood to go to and then go to that neighborhood. And at some point, someone directed me to somebody who had weed. And then once I found them, the next time I was in the area, I'd see them and call them. <laughs> and I, would just, I just had this whole little network of where I can get weed while I was on the road. Um, yeah, man. so imagine, imagine this legalization, all these little places and all these little people who are making money and making their living or whatever in the weed world and the weed industry already are being excluded by so-called legalization. You know, they're not, it doesn't change nothing about them. And that's what I was afraid of in, in New Jersey when I was openly opposed to our marijuana legalization that would just, would just create all these other guys that could sell weed. But the guy who's been here forever, he's, he's, mm. Out. the existing the existing legacy market where sometimes you can put it in terms of uh you know the, you know the columbusization of 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 marijuana like here comes christopher columbus again claiming he discovered something <laughs> and now now they've discovered now they're the cannabis industry we created the cannabis industry and we're moving into a state near you. Like what, dude? <laughs> in, these, in these hoods, we've always had weed. What are you talking about? <laughs> We're here. <laughs> yeah. You imagine Native Americans with Christopher Columbus and those guys and the, and the English came, mm -hmm. cut up their land and their property and acted like they weren't even there. Hey man, we could do six hours on my self-loathing of the history of my country and the atrocities that the British Empire has committed onto the world. Um, I often uh, joke about it because it's actually cannabis that enabled it. You know, the ships that sailed around the world that we created slavery and the sugar trade and all the rest of it, the sails were cannabis. You know, the, the ropes were cannabis, the lacquer, the, the oils on the lamps, you know, they took the seed for nutrition. We It was the, a staple that you could pay a tax in, in this country it's it's so intrinsically woven into our history and the modern world looks the way it does because of the fucking trade of it ran by the british through the 16 from the 1600s you know most of the the countries that are shaped today are in some form 
warfare around drugs. It's always been about controlling the international trade. And it's only really the past 20, 30 years that they've kind of had to go, oh, shit, we, we would make more if we control both sides. So if we control the illicit market and we control the legal market, so then they get social control. It's the analogy or the image that comes to my head is the legacy market, the people like yourself that have then fought to open that door, they walk through, kick you out into the rain and lock the door behind you. Yes. And that, that is what pro, uh, this new legalization is. And so I, one of the missions that I'm on, I guess, with speaking to people around the world is to try and find this commonality because it is an, a common narrative I've found in every region that I've either visited or spoken with people in that there is a corporate version of cannabis that is coming, but it is not going to liberate its victims. It's going to create lifetime customers. We'll be allowed to celebrate their brands and wear their iconography, you know, and, and share their, their products and create an identity around it. But we won't be able to do the same with ourselves. We won't well, be able. I'm not giving up on that. I'm not should you, man? That's that's what I think is the plan and the plot, and I think it would happen if no one said anything. I think I'm one of them guys to say say things about it. So I I, I don't think it's going to be the, the easy walk in the park. I, I think that's what I'm trying to say. I think this happened in New Jersey. So, sorry, you said walk in the park and your dog went. What? <laughs> <laughs> but he does know that word. Yeah. Bless him. Yeah, he knows it. W-A-L-K. There's certain words I can't use with him in the room. Oh, bless. Watch this one. Dot. Where's the dot? Hey, did you hear me? Where's the dot? <laughs> oh, he's beautiful. I shouldn't do that to him. No. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't hear me at first. I don't know what he was listening to. He was listening to something out the door. <laughs> but, um, nice flush. Uh, yeah, you, you were saying like that it's, it's sort of not going to be easy. And to tie it back into what we were saying before about censorship. So in the UK at the minute... We, uh, we used to put on events with sort of the more well-known vendors in the UK. So the dealers that were creating brands and they would bring stalls. So you'd bring like a pop-up gazebo, but they'd know how to play the game. So the, the front of stall would be legitimate legal. And then they'd have the other things kind of under the counter. And so there were people that really, these are entrepreneurs that if you remove the law, these guys would be millionaires. They know their product. They have their network. They really give a shit about it. You know, they're moving a lot of the guys I know that are really successful and living organics now. So they're now looking at things like bioremediation. They're considering things on a scientific level that the people that are selling tons, literal tons, don't give a shit about. They don't care what lead qualities in it. They, don't, they only care enough to get under the testing levels. They're not trying to create that pure product. They don't want research and development to occur in bedrooms and in community greenhouses. They want that to occur behind closed doors so they can patent it. They can create the next generation of profit profitable products from it. Whereas I think one of the things I really resonated with, with what yourself has done with the way you sort of use the temple space um, and allowed people to come and have the smokeouts and everything else is you were really in celebration of the culture of cannabis consumption. And I think too often that is lost. We are consumers. And then as, when I, as soon as I traveled the States, I did 6,000 miles in six U.S. states in 2018. And everywhere I went, I was a criminal. 
I could go and buy the weed, but then I couldn't smoke it anywhere. I couldn't go to my hotel room. I couldn't then go to a public park. I had to learn all the different local laws and shit about even where, to, where I could house it in the car, how much I could sort of have with different limits. Um, and then literally some parks I'd go in, I was told, oh, you shouldn't smoke weed in there. I'm like, why? That's, that's a federal park. And I'm like, yeah. And like, yeah, they'll arrest you federally. Whereas you go smoke it over there, you'll get arrested locally. And I'm like, what? And so learning all this nuance of these restrictions that they have put in place that if you own that land, yes, screw you off. So you can't even step on my property. Whereas if you are then homeless, even I can't imagine what the, it, the life is like there. I see quite a few pages I follow that give like joints to the homeless and stuff like that. And I know there is a big cannabis consuming population there, but they are forever criminalized in a region where they are saving up money to go and buy weed legally that then they can't consume. They can't, do you know what I mean? It's such a paradox. Yeah, the drug laws. <laughs> um, I used to go to, in Philadelphia, go to the Liberty Bell, go to the Liberty Bell. It's called uh, Independence Park or Constitutional Mall. That's like two or three different names, that whole little area downtown. And that's controlled by the federal government. So there was a time when uh, me and a guy named Patrick Duff used to go down to the federal, federal property to have protests there to bring federal attention. And I don't know, we were <laughs> idealistic, we'll say. And um, again, deal, just totally dealing with the federal system. Most of the time for small amounts of weed, you'll never deal with the feds. Mm -hmm. you, got, you have to be caught on the federal park, which happens a lot actually. People go to the park and they don't know the difference and they're smoking it on a federal park and they get different charges or or someone that are on a military base too, that happens on a military, but you should know better on a military base, but there are people who'll be driving through a military base, smoking weed, they get pulled over and they'll catch a federal charge. They gotta go to a federal court. Yeah. Um, but most of the time, most people don't have to deal with the feds too often. I think on the waterways a little bit too, because I've heard of people that like get pulled over in their boats or something and have like a pound of weed in there to party with and the coast guard to find it, you know? Um, and they end up in federal court too. But the federal courts usually not what you gotta worry about in, in, in the states really. But certain states are different with their laws and they're, they're all changing. So even state by state and county by county and yeah, I couldn't imagine getting caught in like Louisiana or Alabama with a large amount of marijuana. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, on that road trip I was telling you about before, I left Colorado to go to uh, I stayed just outside of Pendleton in uh, Oregon. So I had to do this trip through, I think it's Utah. And Utah, I was looking at the laws and there were six months for a grinder. And I was like, nah, fuck you. I've just been in the shop and bought all of this lovely merch with Colorado on for this. You know, I'm keeping all the packaging as part of my road trip. And yeah. so I'm like, shit. And then I'm trying to look how I can get out of, I think I was in Mesa. So in the top like uh, Western corner of Colorado. And I had to get from there, like I said, to Pendleton. It's like 950 miles. And so I'm like, all right, I can do it in one day. I'll just, I'll just do one straight journey. If I don't stop anywhere, not a problem. Set off on the road. My windscreen shattered literally just outside of uh, Salt Lake City. Had to stop at the airport, switch cars, 
I'm paranoid as, as hell. I'd literally decided to smoke all of my weed and eat all my edibles the night before. And I was like, if I get caught with paraphernalia, I'm a tourist, I can kind of blag, I'll do whatever. I'm a I'm out here as a journalist, I'll I'll deal with this sort of thing. And but that just meant I was stoned over all goddamn day on this drive. And by the time I got there, having to switch over this car and everything, I'm driving over sort of the border, and then the time zone changes. So then all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, I can get to this weed shop. So then I fly up to, I think it was kindly for something like that in the bottom corner in Pendleton, got there and it was just, it was soccer moms and it was like old people. And it was everybody that you would not normally associate to smoke cannabis was there just grabbing the last little bits for the evening. And that difference of that day was so mind blowing. I'd left a safe space driving going, I'm fine. Crossed an imaginary line where I could go to prison for six months plus for just having bits associated to the plant, then got into a place where it was the cheapest I'd found the weed and everybody was so normalized with it. It was just so surreal to see that visceral difference, as you were saying, of the, of the different regions. Hmm. Yeah. That, that is an issue. And like I said, I was a coast-to-coast truck driver, so I know what you're saying. I know what you mean. From- yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that I wanted to sort of uh, ask you about is Jersey, obviously Jersey is still sort of working most of the model out as far as I'm aware, but do you know if there's a move towards home, a, a regulated homegrown market? No, there's, there's a movement of people who want it. There's activism uh, for that. There's a couple politicians that say they're for it, but nobody drawing a line and saying, trying to get it. Um, they're actually opposed to it. If you ask me, it's because the big corporations have already bribed their politicians to be against it. So, um, you know, there's a there's an image I sent you. I don't know if you can see it. Do you see that image uh, sent to the chat? Which one is it? Sorry, there's three of them. Uh, uh, I'd say number. Oh yeah, I've got the the meet and greet one. Oh, that's the mural. I'll, what I'll do is I'll. Yeah. Edit I, these into the to the cut. Yeah, that's cool, man. Yeah, that's that's my that's the wall on the side of my building. So if you if you if you see those images, that's me with the uh slingshot and all that I was talking about. Uh in across the street from City Hall. I call that mural right there. I call it the Battle of Trenton Two. And it's on the internet as the Battle of Strength, too. I think that's on share screen. So that should now be on the record. Yeah, it's on the recording screen there, folks. Uh, it's in the top left corner there. Yeah, that's NJ uh, Weedman, the, the mural you were saying about the politicians and sort of the losers of the war on drugs in Jersey. Let, let, let me explain this one real quick. Okay, that's me, obviously, with my slingshot. So I'm invoking this whole David versus Goliath thing. That's the government. I'm smoking a joint, NJ Weed Man. This here is the county prosecutor. His name is, uh, I don't know, Prosecutor Ornfrey. I forget his first name right now. Um, but I had promised him one time after they arrested me that I was going to kick his ass. I was going to whoop his ass. So there's <laughs> article saying I was going to whoop his ass, and sure enough, you see him sitting here with a red ass. Um, these are two of his prosecutors. I beat them in different trials, so I got them knocked out. <laughs> <laughs> That's the judge over here um, that uh, I called him the, the hanging judge and I wrote a whole big, I actually wrote a little book um, where I said the legal lynching of, of NJ Weedman. 
And this is the judge in that book. Says, I called him the hanging judge. He, ha he has the noose. He tried to lynch me, illegal lynchings, and it didn't work. Uh, Uncle Sam, the federal government, they've just been watching the fight. They haven't entered here in New Jersey. They've just been watching. He did nothing. Uncle Sam did nothing. The police who arrested me after I got found not guilty of everything, you know, I just got them saying, oops. I told you I was going to whoop your ass. That's what I said to him. <laughs> so there's, there's articles. If you Google NJ Weed Man whoops ass, this is what I'm talking about. So I put this whole big mural of different incidents on the wall just to kind of symbolize it. This guy, Zev, he's a rat and stuck in a trap. I tell people, just Google, who is NJ Weedman's rat? Who is NJ Weedman's rat? When people ask, what's, the, what's that up there? What's the rat? <laughs> so I say, Google it. Google who is NJ Weedman's rat, and you'll see that. And then I had an argument with an Officer Flowers, too. <laughs> Very aptly named. <laughs> yeah, I, su I suggest to people when they ask me, like, what's up with this Officer Flowers up there? I say, Google, go to YouTube, actually, and, go and, and put it in YouTube search, Officer Flowers versus Weed Man, or Weed Man versus Officer Flowers. There's a seven-minute video confrontation that I like promoting when I, when I talk about why Officer Flowers is on my wall. <laughs> So I've made I've made a couple of things and around here kind of kind of this is my this is my this image is going to live forever somewhere. Yeah. On the internet. Um just, just so yeah. is this is this on the side of the joint? Yes, this is on the side. So this is literally the Capitol building is across the street. <laughs> yeah, so so every, every day they, they get they get the the joy of looking at that image. Yes, that's that's wonderful. That that is emblematic of victory. If ever I've seen something to be. Now, now I tell you, I tell you, when I first got here in 2016, that administration was opposed to me, didn't like me, had different views. Mm -hmm. By the way, it was the black administration, Mayor Jackson's office, and Mayor Jackson's office basically launched a police campaign against me. Um which I'm still suing the city for that. But the new administration, um, Reed Gasora, the mayor is actually white guy and pro-weed. So I have a, an entirely different um, administrations that, that I've, I've lived through here, yeah. through, through my protest. The first one didn't like me. The second one, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in line with their, their thinking, you know? Uh, and, yeah, city, and, and city city hall itself, you know, just the fact that I'm doing it across the street from city hall, like, like I have, I actually have a city hall cam. I'm not sure if it's on, but I have a city hall cam. There are people who go looking for city hall of Trenton and end up on my webpage, just looking at the city at city hall. I have a, I have a mm -hmm. streaming, a streaming city hall, Trenton city hall, uh, webcam. You know, I guess any building on this street could do it if they wanted to, but nobody else has that interest, so it's on my page somewhere. No, um, nice. Do you want to um, talk through the second image? I'll stick that on the share screen as well. Oh, sure. We'll go about that, that one, too. Uh, there we go. That should be on. Yeah, this, this is in the beginning of the COVID 
um, uh, epidemic. People were wearing, wearing masks, so I had my mask on. I did this as an image. This was part of my hashtag, sell weed like I'm white. If you look on this particular picture right behind my head, it's NJ can't get 12 saying that was the jury nullification image. But there's one that says hashtag sell weed like I'm white also Mm -hmm. in this picture. But I was selling weed. The governor at the time had announced that weed, weed was essential. So they weren't going to close the dispensaries down. <clears throat> well, I made this whole big story right up that since weed is essential now, and there's only these limited amount of ATCs that were covering just the people uh, that were medical marijuana patients, me as the as a black market, I was going to dispense this essential material too to whoever else needed it besides those people that were getting it through the government regulated ones. And this is, this is one of that, one of the things I had, I, I used this image to say, yes, we're open. I'm selling weed. My little protest, NJ can't get 12. Mm-hmm. And sell weed like I'm white. And I had, I did de- depict on the other side. These are all politicians in New Jersey. Yeah. That, that I'm representing myself as the, as the elephant in the room, as they're making all these rules, <laughs> you know, they're making all these rules. They're getting money. They're sharing things. They're I don't know. I just decided that this this was a was an image that I wanted to use to promote my mm. sell weed like a white campaign. Um, this got circulated pretty good at the time, and a lot of people that saw this ended up coming into my place. This was just one of many pictures though that said different things similar to this, but this was one, this one got a lot of attention when I first put it out. Um, and to me, it's civil disobedience at its finest. <laughs> uh, yeah. Across the street, city hall. Yeah, I love the, uh, the sort of nod of the cap to other Jersey locals, uh, Kevin Smith there with the Jay and Silent Bob on the, uh, I'm sure you were open. Yes. Yeah, I cut. you know what? I put that on there hoping that would catch, catch their attention. I've never been able to catch their attention. You know that? For them to be big weed guys, I'm 60 miles. I'm 60 miles from the stash spot, their, their location yeah. in New Jersey. And I've gone there, I've emailed, I've Twittered. I never could catch, uh, 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 Kevin Smith's attention. Mm. I feel like I'm kind of a celebrity in the weed world, just like he is. Like, how come he can't? I don't know. He had to read me. He had to bounce at something. He yeah. had to go you know, to there's some guy from New Jersey. He's from New Jersey. I don't know. I always thought I thought that was weird that I could never get in touch with it. But anyway, I put that picture in there just to kind of like, hey, I don't know. Maybe maybe he'll contact me and tell me to take my stop using his image. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, one way or another, he'll uh, he'll communicate with you. <laughs> no, he, he, he actually did. This is a couple years old. This is like four years old, maybe. This is 2017 or 18. 18. This is 2018, I think. So, um, no, he never did contact me about that. No one contacted me about it. But I use it. I think it's a good image. That's why mm-hmm. I shot. I shot at you as I'm sitting there talking. I think it backs up some of the things I was saying. That's all. 
Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's cool. Definitely gonna obviously make obviously make sure they're included in the the recording. Um, you did actually raise quite an interesting point, and it's something I tried to bring up um, with Tommy Chung when I had him on sort of the podcast of kind of how some celebrities are allowed and given a brand and other celebrities are not allowed to be represented at that level. So it's, I, I did a lot of research, like I said, around blogs of what happened with say Jay-Z when he became part of this massive conglomerate special acquisition company. Part of that deal meant rock nation, his entertainment arm kind of went part of it. So anybody that was signed on to that is now basically being offered a weed brand. So it's, they're now using celebrity just to front the brand. Whereas the people that I feel like Kevin Smith, actually the way he represented it through Jay and Silent Bob and through his Viewerskew universe, he was always advocating for the normalization of cannabis throughout his entertainment medium. So I think he kind of gets a pass almost on that in the, he was, he's done the work. He'd, he'd grandfathered himself in same with, I guess, to Cheech and Chong. But then, like I said, there are a lot of celebrities now that just because they have an audience base or because they're cool, I don't want to sort of name drop Justin Bieber or somebody like that, but the reviews I've seen from the Peaches roles are not good. You know what I mean? The products that they're producing are not about quality. They're not about honoring the community. And, you know? Because you know what that really is? You know the term white labeling? Mm. White label product. Like... I'm just, I'm just going to guess the product. Uh, Clorox bleach, right? There's a company that makes Clorox bleach and puts a label on and sells it. And then there's probably six or seven other companies that that company mark, makes the product for you, put the label on too, and they call it a white, white label, right? They're, they white label things. I think a lot of these celebrities are putting their names and on... Products that basically are just white labels. Yeah. Uh, it, it was it was already part of another company, another corporation, another thing. And you know, and, and I'm not knocking it's business. Um, and and that's and that's I think what's happening too, because I I don't want I don't want to drop names or say things negative either. Um, deliberately, I'm gonna, I'm gonna avoid that. I'm not trying to start nothing. But there's some there's a couple big big companies out there that, that just are uh, deriding a name that mm -hmm. we, we is not all that, if you ask me. But they got this name, and like mm -hmm. everybody, no matter what, is going to try it because of the name, and they're buying it. And I don't know, I, I, I'm, I'm not made at, at a smaller level five years ago. I bet you everything they had was smoking. Mm. I think they got so big keeping up with things that their brand, their product has gone down in quality. That's mm. what I think. It's my personal opinion. I could be wrong. But that name, and 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 I think there are pro products being made by the, the celebrities are putting their name on. They're coming from this particular corporation, and I don't really think like we, when you get one of these celebrity packages, sometimes like you want the picture on the package because the, <laughs> the, the way you decide is is you know I can get better, <laughs> you know I I seen a lot better and I but it's it's packaging. Trust me, um, 
I've been offered a, a couple of packaging deals too. And it's really the product It's really getting a steady stream. And I, I anyway, it's, there's a couple issues that I've had already. And, but I do want to get into that myself, to be honest with you, I would love to have my name on a particular stream. And just what I just said, I, I wouldn't even want it to be like one of these big companies that are already doing it and this, that, and the other. I'd like to grow with a nice little grower somewhere, produce, produce my own uh, strain, mm-hmm. let them dedicate two or three warehouses full of it and make a couple thousand pounds of it though. And, <laughs> and then we package that up as the, it's the real, my strain, you know, yeah. like I, I, I wouldn't mind doing that at some point in the future. But mm-hmm. the I think hopefully the uh, foundation and the groundwork that you've already put in place and the fact that it is still quite malleable right now, it's still quite a moldable industry, means that I think you might get very well get that opportunity. I think you raise a, a really interesting point, and it kind of brought me back to something in the, let's say, look, let's look at South Park, for example. I have been a, a lover of Matt and Trey's work for decades it was the first i'm 33 it was the first kind of crude adult thing that i got exposed to and i've kind of loved it ever since and i've enjoyed watching their revolution and then become sort of more more politically active and more sort of uh, socially minded and then watch the revolution now around cannabis and their intentions to create integrity farms and kind of harken back to what you're saying about this unnamed brand x we shall say that once you arrive to a certain level, the product doesn't need to be anything at all. As long as there is a product, people buy it to be seen with the packaging. People buy it so that others see them consuming it. People buy it so that they're included. We have this, this FOMO that marketing generates and the machine of something like South Park is so prevalent and powerful nowadays. Like I said, that they don't need to create a product that stands on its own. And I think actually, a globalized cannabis model won't stand. Even if you take clones from the same cultivar and you get it grown in the right environments across the world, there's still going to be variants. I think the local micro production, that's how you get real uh, specification, real perfection of certain cultivars. And I think that's what's going to really give the the legacy market its opportunity to exist in this is we don't want to be the Starbucks of cannabis. We want our own little piece of the pie and we want to operate as part of a network of others that are seeking to do better, not to cut corners and make cheaper products, but to, um, at, at any cost rather, but to, to make better products at a cheaper price that is better for the, the environment, for the ecology, for the community. Um. The only thing is I want to be one of the Starbucks of cannabis. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be that little guy who has one little business. Like the guy who started Starbucks started with one little comp- one little Starbucks in Seattle, I think, right? Seattle. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember. And, you know, I can't even remember his name. I just know his, his storyline. It's like cute. So I wouldn't mind. To be honest with you, I don't know if you know that. I actually at one point was calling my place weed bucks in a deliberate attempt to catch some publicity when Starbucks resisted it. <laughs> and I did, I got the, I got the letter from Starbucks. That's the cease and desist letter. Mm-hmm. Cease and desist letter basically got put into a press release and sent all over the place. The next thing I know, the whole world was writing about how 
Starbucks and sent the cease and desist letter to Weed Man. <laughs> and I got publicity out of it. But um, I don't know. I think we should force our way in, man. That's bottom line is we have to force our way in. I think if, if there has to be a Starbucks of cannabis, I think it's it should be from the legacy market that it's owned. Yes. Yes. I mean, Starbucks could, could announce tomorrow that they're in, in, in legal states that they're offering cannabis-infused uh, lattes. And guess what happened? They will have lines out of the door longer than Chick-fil-A. <laughs> oh, boy. Imagine if Chick-fil-A started using the first page of the Bible one day. and said all seed bearing herbs are good and hey wait a minute does that mean cannabis oh yes let's put that in our Mm -hmm. god chicken (laughs) Uh, let me stop before i both the lightning hit me from (laughs) chick-fil-a next time i ride by a (laughs) chick-fil-a So you actually, you, you uh, segue quite well onto a question I did want to ask you is obviously you had a restaurant and as far as I'm aware, Jersey are looking to then ban edibles or cannabis infusions that are similar to food. I can't remember the exact wording. It's quite awkward wording though. Seriously, that is so funny. Every time I read this, anything about the fact that they're going to ban edibles, come on. People have been making brownies forever. <laughs> you can make brownies. Oh, you can buy our weed. And, but you have to smoke it. <laughs> you can't break it up and make edibles with it <laughs> and let your neighbor eat it. Like, that is so ridiculous. Like, how do they even think that that power exists, that they have that power? And if they had that power, would 12 people put you in prison if you broke that power? If you said, tell us that power, like, you know what? Yeah, I make brownies every week with weed. <laughs> and I distribute it to my neighbors who all want it, who all ask me for it. I don't know. I, I, I don't, I, I, but yes, technically in the state of New Jersey, they made it legal and edibles are, are illegal, whether they're brownies or somebody's uh, gummies, they're illegal. Um, does that include CBD products as well, or any of the hemp-derived cannabinoids? You know, I'm so much into straight-up THC that sometimes I, I just don't even want to talk about CBD, mm. Delta-8, Delta-9, and all these ways to skirt the law and change this and change that and don't provide the THC, the whole plant that most of us want. Mm. Sure, people want CBD. Not me. <laughs> no. Mm. I like I like smoking good old THC, and most of the time I like smoking it. I could put it in tea, I could eat it, I could drink it. I still prefer smoking it. Um, yeah, man. I don't know, but home grow. Like, you can't grow a plant at home that's supposedly legal. Like, come on, it's, just, it's ridiculous. And I just, I still just find it funny that they're still fighting this war on drugs that they already lost, this war on weed that they already lost. I think like I said, they're fighting for them to own and control. So if they're the license keepers, if they are the authority that gets to come and knock on the door and go, how tall are your plants? Is that a fifth plant? Oh, you're coming with us, Sonny. They, they still feel this emphasis, this need, this impetus as if they have any authority in this. And the point of 
what I would say is the end of the war on cannabis or the end of what I hope will lead to the war on drugs in general is the idea that, hey, you can get as fucked up as you want, but as soon as you fuck up other people's things, then we have a problem. But what my responsibility as a government is, if you're going to do these things, we should help regulate and educate and inform you. And I think they've missed education out of this. They're only informing people as far as to make them consumers. Yeah, that's the plan. <laughs> I'm resisting that, though. That's that's what I get. I just have to resist it, and I hope there are people following me. And I hope there are other people who want to do it. You know, maybe not the same way I'm doing it, but hey. Oh, that one when I was talking a few minutes ago about branding myself. Mm -hmm. uh, this particular picture. That's why I sent that to you. This is a weed man, Doctor Boogie picture. I don't know. I think I could. I think I could sell weed with with that image. Yeah, I like that man. Uh, <laughs> let me sh check that on the share screen for the folks at home. I think I can. Um, since when we were talking about branding, I grabbed the image real fast. Yeah, and I, you can see it. I think it's one of the. For all I made the comment about Starbucks before, um, I know obviously conglomeratization, the corporate kind of wave is in some ways, I guess, yeah, inevitable. Um, but I think as long as, um, I say it's people with, with a genuine passion for the planet, like yourself, uh, are leading that charge, that then there isn't corners or shadows created where people are still being exploited. Whereas I think under the current guise and the whitewashed, gentrified system that they're seeming to be trying to create across the entire world, anywhere that somewhere pops up, these corporate suits arrive and they start lobbying government and, as you said, legally bribing agencies and authorities to write rules and regulations to their benefit. But their markets will collapse. We're already seeing that in California at the minute is in real trouble. They're having to look at abandoning tax as a way to kind of deal with a mechanism, and that's not going to work. They're still going to allow foreign investment into the market. The market's going to be working on a potential future that won't materialize because the people are too busy and too interested in creating culture, community. They don't want a new thing. They want to legitimize what they've been doing for 20, 30, 40 years. Exactly. Oh, you know, it, what I find amazing, too, is these, these big cookie-cutter type places that they're creating, these uh, Walmarts of weed, these dispensaries, as they put it. Mm -hmm. there, so many of them are just so perfect. So... Uh, some of them look like doctor's office. Some of them look like a nice high school something. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the wave of the future is going to be like little homey type things, the local mom and pop shops, the, the place that gets built, the, it looks like the, the local deli or something, you know, like as opposed to these doctor's office shops. And I believe that's what, you know, me having this place called The Joint, um, NJ Weedman's joint in Trenton, New Jersey. I I, I want to replicate it a couple of different places, but I want to keep. I, I still want to keep that 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 stoner cultural type of uh, place as opposed to these uh, WalMarts of weed type places that are coming. Mm. There'll be chain stores, you know. Listen, I I I don't I don't hate the ideas of of McDonald's or Starbucks or any of those. You know, when you look out there, they're they're 
huge, great, successful organizations. Um, but the local Johnny's hamburger joint is probably better. <laughs> um, it looks, it, it, you know, you feel like you're, you're wanted there as opposed to McDonald's. And it's just like, yeah, you just walk in the assembly line, you're the end result. You were that guy that buys the 235th billion burger. You know what I mean? They might put you on that side. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. I, I just want. To, I think the little guys should be existing. I think all these guys that sell weed, the guys you said, like the pop up guys that 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 would have these 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 uh, pop up shops. Mm-hmm. You let one of these guys loose and say no rules, no laws. You can't. You won't get busted. Just go for it. Create yourself an industry. Create yourself a an industry would pop up from the existing people, the existing yeah. people are doing it now. Um, there would be people that would excel and still in, in transportation. <laughs> you know how many smugglers there are in America? Yeah. I had, there was a period of time, remember I told you I was a coast to coast truck driver. Hey, I, I transported lots and lots of marijuana. Most of the time it was for me, but there was a few times I carried wheat for other people who had a lot more money than me and I carried it across the country. And, you know, um, I think there should be a weed, uh, you know, weed distribution companies that, that, that bring marijuana successfully from the fields of California to deliver them to the dispensaries in New Jersey or to, to, to the homeboys in Baltimore or to, to uh, the white guys in, 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 in Boston. You know what I mean? Like, but there, there should be an industry from the black market side that could do that. I, me as a coast to coast truck driver, I actually experienced it. I carried lots of weed from Arizona, Brownsville, Texas to New Jersey. Uh, I say Brownsville it was really McClellan, McClellan, Texas. That's where I picked it up at. <laughs> and I remember some of these loads. You know, I remember going to Yuma and I got pulled over by the cops in Yuma before I picked up my load. So then I was afraid to pick up my load. I didn't pick up my load. I was as a coast to coast truck driver that had my own cash. I could just buy loads of cabbage or cantaloupes or different subs, different produce in those towns along the border and mm-hmm. transport them to um, New Jersey or Philly or Boston to their to their produce markets and sell it. As I sometimes as where you're on your way across the country, you sell it. Other times you get there. Uh, and 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 you basically go through some of the, the, the brokers and would really sell your load. And if you had cash, anyway, guys who do that also can mix things in with their loads. So yeah. I kind of mixed, mixed a few things in with my loads from the border areas of of, uh, of Arizona and Texas a couple of yeah. times. Um, but that would be mm-hmm. viable. <laughs> See, I told you a couple of runners with the DEA. <laughs> Oh, uh, uh, but but that's a legitimate. If there if legalization was really legal, then let, let's get the guys from California where they have all this weed, and they go to go to Oregon. They have overabundance of weed there, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and and, well, and they, they've they've created their own system with Oregon. They have allowed Oregon as the only state that's allowed interstate sales. So they're already doing that for their people and their networks. So like someone like Cure Relief and 107 dispensaries can basically do what the fuck they want. But then the guys who actually went to prison like yourself and that, that have then built the the foundations that they've come along and gone, is it ready? Yeah, Blanc. 
we'll take it, take that money. And it's that I think is becoming a more apparent narrative to the people who are informed. And I hope that, as I said, that because Jersey is still quite in its infancy, that it's not going to be California in 10 years. Do you know what I mean? And I think with people like yourself at the, the helm, if they give you a license and they actually let you participate, I think you will show them a model of access that will rally these corporate vultures that are just there to impoverish the neighborhoods that their war has already destroyed. Right. And, and I find it to follow the rules. I don't want to say anything that would uh, be used against me later, <laughs> but, <laughs> but to follow the rules that they're getting ready to implement in New Jersey, you have to still practically have to be a corporation or you buy everything from the corporations that they're setting up. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there should be a free market. Why do I? Why? Why will people have to buy their weed from the from the the monopoly the government is allowing to be set up? The free market is already existing. Again, here's that whole thing about it's existing. Here, like in a city like Trenton, I'm in Trenton, New Jersey, huge urban population. Nobody in this city ever has runs out of weed unless they can run out of money. They don't have the money to buy any weed, but there's weed. There's always weed. I can go to Camden, Atlantic City. I can go to all these cities, and there's there's weed there, and they're existing, and there's an industry already there. Mm -hmm. and, and to to acquiesce to this new industry, there's all these these creators, Christopher Columbus industries. Um, I don't know. It takes it takes away a lot. It takes away a lot of what. I lost my train of thought there, guy. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. Lost my train of thought. Um, or where I was going to end, where I was going to end that with. Sorry about that. That's all right. I think uh, we. So yeah, what you're uh, sort of saying is that the system is going to continue to evolve and grow anyway. Oh, I didn't okay. I'm sorry. I got no. Hit me. To be legal, to be legal in this new industry that I, you say, you know, you hope I get a license. I'm hoping I get a license too, right? But I can foresee issues with being legal for others even even like me to be in mm -hmm. the selection of marijuana i have now is better than any of the selection of any of the marijuana i see coming out of any of the dispensaries um the legal ones mm -hmm. um yeah they're, they're usually limited to how many they even selections they even have whereas the black market dispensaries or pop-up shops there's dozens upon dozens of Flavors, strains, indica, sativas, chocolate bars, candy bars, mushroom bars, like like the product line that the black market has so far passes the product line that the legal regulated dispensaries have. That I, I, I find as legalization comes to New Jersey that I hope there's a whole lot of law breaking. So the black market side gets their product, mm -hmm. you know, there. Yeah. And, and, and again, a lot of that, again, I, I think, I think I, I said it like a joke a few minutes ago, kind of, but even transportation companies, black market transportation companies would be successful. Imagine a guy could say, yeah, you want 50 pounds of weed from uh, Portland or you want 50 pounds of weed from Seattle? Just call me and my guys, my delivery guys would get your weed there in three days. And East Coast guys would buy that. 
mm-hmm. you know, um, I think that should be legal. I think, I think there could be little guys that the startup cost for something like that, a couple good sized Ford Ecoline vans <laughs> or cars with hidden compartments. I don't know, but, um, just like they got guys out West that make money transporting the weed. I mean, transporting the money, mm-hmm. um, for legal dispensaries because they can't put it in a bank and stuff like that. And they have large amounts of money. Same thing with, I, th- I think, I think if the federal government stood down and they were able to make coast to coast, uh, you know, FedEx of weed, you know, <laughs> uh, weed X, call it weed X. You know, yeah. now why somebody steal that? Watch tomorrow. I see someone that's got a <laughs> LLC for Weedex. If it's not one already, someone's going to make one tomorrow. Uh, Weedex. And um, they just specialize in transporting weed. Will we come to that point one day in, in America? Those type of companies will, will exist. And will they big, big, giant conglomerates that get in there? Will DXL start doing it? Or will it just be some dude with a couple of... Uh, a couple of uh, vans gets a couple clients next thing you know he's he's made his first million yeah yeah but it's, it's interesting i mean looking at the uk currently we have a prescribed system where about ten thousand people get sent uh cannabis in the post so they get somewhere 30 grams to 60 grams and so these are all private courier services because they won't use the the, the british postal system but oh. the, Br- the british po- you have it. What I was thinking, what I have Yeah, so there's now virtual clinics being set up. So you go on a Zoom call like this with the doctor, you pay 50 quid. You go, I've got ailment XYZ, send them a little bit of paperwork. They then give you a prescription. You can then shop from these clinics, but you're then, the cannabis you're getting is being imported from Canada or Israel or Australia. And so, so, so it's the carbon foot. Yeah, the carbon footprint is ridiculous. Bear, bear, bear in mind, the UK last year in 2020 grew over 100 tons of cannabis, which we exported because we're not allowed to sell our own product back here in the UK. So it's they've created this such a fast system. I thought we had some goofy laws. But it's the joke. We, we often joke because our Royal Mail was made a private company several years ago during sort of the collapse of our economy after Lehman Brothers and Goldman Sachs and all of that kind of crashed the car a little. Um, (laughs) And the joke we have is that the Royal Mail is kept alive by cannabis because all of the the vendors on Wicker or Telegram through Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat and everything else, everybody is posting each other drugs at all times. So the the, the biggest drug dealers in the UK are the, the postmen. And so it's almost, as we were saying before, about... We don't need to necessarily create too much additional infrastructure. We've already found out ways to make things work. We just need to kind of pause the criminalization, look and reflect on the situation and kind of go, well, you guys are violent. We don't want you involved. You guys exploit people and literally traffic other humans. We don't want you involved. You guys care about the plant and have genuine knowledge. All right. You guys should be in. You can work out if you just stop the arbitrary criminalization of activities involving cannabis you can realize who are the, the criminally minded. And so obviously some people end up in that situation out of necessity of economics or situation. So I'm not excluding all violence necessarily, but people that are vindictive and vicious, that actual, let's call it a like movie style drug dealer 
you know, the vicious turn up in an area, kill my enemies, take over territory, that kind of mentality that is, I suppose it's, it's criminalized corporate nature actually in a lot of ways. It's a very yin to yang of the corporate world, but it doesn't really have a place. I think in the foundation of an industry that should be reflective of the people that have been here, not to make money while it's been illegal, but because it heals because they have a passion for it because they've found culture, community connection, humanity through this plant. You know what I mean? They're the ones who should be leading the charge because they're not going to be coming up with, oh, we want these five uh, cultivars because that's what the people are asking for because it's what we've told them to what they want. They would actually exactly allow the market to open. So there would be thousands upon thousands of different cultivars and products and innovations. You know what I mean? And I think that's the future we're all going to be end up fighting for regardless. Well, that's what I hope. I hope it's wide open. At some point it's wide open. I hope legalization comes for everyone. That's, that's mm-hmm. right. Um, I don't think it's bad though to try to make money off it. That's not where I, I like, I'm not opposed to people making money off it. I was opposed to these big corporations, this big corporate thing comes in and a little guy can't make money off it. It's, it's where, it's where the money, the money goes. So the argument I make in the UK is I'd rather go and spend my money with Dave down the road, because if I give him 20 quid, he's going to spend that on his daughter's dinner. Whereas if we then went to the legal model and I give it to, you know, Mike, the bud tender, he's going to get minimum wage and all of that money is going to go out of the country. So the corporation pays no tax. So it's actually going to impoverish the neighborhoods that they're then selling the weed to. Whereas if we legitimize the people who are here, where they're just going to spend their money in the local shops. They're going to make sure their kids have got uniforms. They're going to, and that system is what I hope to see incentivized over international conglomeratization. And that's what I mean by saying I'm opposed to kind of like Starbucks, McDonald's being, I guess, the only players. So you can only franchise a cannabis branch. And as you say, you're only allowed, uh, here's your order sheet. You can put this on your menu and that is it. Yeah. I, want, I, want, I want to see that representation that actually if a community grower can come to you as a seller, you can test that product and go, that's clean. I want to sell this. This is amazing. What do you want for it? Negotiate a price. They get the fair equitable share. You get to sell it at a fair uh, like scale to your consumers. And everyone's happy. Yes. I, I think that that should, be, that should happen. Hey, by the way, a few minutes ago, you mentioned somebody who, 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 who I like, who I met numerous times. Um, Vivian McPeak. Mm. That you had you on the show. I, I, I can't remember what year the first year I went. Um, but in the early two thousands, I went to uh, the uh, Seattle Hemp Fest the first time, and I had heard about it for a few years before I actually went to one. Mm-hmm. And I think I've gone to at least seven or eight of seven or eight uh, events. And I and I follow him online. I watch what he says. I like Vivian. I wish I had saw him on your show. Now I have to go back and look through your archives and watch his show. <laughs> yeah, please do. Vivian. I like going to, in fact, I met Jack here at, at one of those uh, uh, Seattle Hemp Fest too, before, mm-hmm. even before he had his stroke. So I, uh, yeah, I have a lot of uh, respect for uh, Vivian McPete and what he's, what he's established, you know, him and guys like him that created that Seattle Hemp Fest were the backbone of their, their legalization uh, mm-hmm. effort in, in, in Washington state. So he changed the, uh, to me, He's one of the guys that change, helped change the whole state. Yeah. Know, so I, I always big up him. Um, but I was just looking at the time. 
And I've yeah. got, I've, I've, I've got to kind of wind down here. I sent you another flyer while we was on here, the grand opening of the joint of Miami. Mm. Um, that's something that's going on now too. Share um, screen. There you go, folks. Fourth flyer weekend. When was this? It's twenty ten. No, is this? So that was seven months ago, six months ago, whatever. I. All uh... oh, right, I got confused by the address on the bottom, thinking it was the year twenty ten. <laughs> Yeah, so so I opened a club. That's really a club in Miami, marijuana theme club in Miami, called the Joint of Miami. And not that I went down there trying to start some activism. This is totally not activism. This is uh, um, uh, how should I put it? It's 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 a. I want to attract the attention of the cannabis consuming community mm-hmm. at this club where potheads come to sure. You know, we have a liquor license, people will smoke liquor. Um, but what I want to do is have this place where people are welcome to come here and smoke weed, especially if you're coming from out of state and you're in Florida for some other aspect of tourism. And here's this place that stands out as mm-hmm. a place that went potheads, you know? So, that you know, the, just to just to let you know, that's kind of my my new entrepreneur thing. Since in Florida, you can't actually own a dispensary, and I'm not saying that, that I want to own a dispensary in Florida. I don't know. I don't think. I don't even think I want to own it. But I would love to have a club that was really yeah. geared towards weed. People came there for weed. Celebrities of weed. All these rappers that smoke weed and talk weed and sing weed about weed. They should all come and mm-hmm. play at the Joint of Miami. You know, there's some. There's some, you know, I don't, I don't live that far from the Stone Pony um, here in New Jersey. You know, it's 60 miles from here. The Stone Pony. You know, you know the Stone Pony. No, it's not. a little venue in Asbury Park, New Jersey, called the Stone Pony, and it's created. Or, or, or a lot of celebrities have started their careers there. Bon Jovi, for instance, Bruce Springsteen. Um, there's a few of them, but it's, it's, on their, it's on the list of places that up and coming people from the New Jersey area make sure they, they play there. They feel like they made it to the world if they could play there. Um, so I kind of want to try to turn the joint of Miami into a similar place for all these rappers that sing about weed, but I want to make it, you know, about weed. So have these type of people, these type of celebrities that come through. And I've actually attracted the attention of a few, quite a few uh, celebrities already. In six months, I've had some A-listers that have come through my place. I think it's going to end in a a hot little place called the Joint of Miami. We're new, but we're working on it just to kind of wind down a little bit to make sure you know know about not only the activism and, and all that, but just on the uh, entrepreneurial aspect of marijuana, I call it 420 entertainment, actually. There's a whole genre of, of yeah, yeah. money that can be just, just in 420 entertainment. Um, and having a club and a venue that caters to, to weed smoking partiers, <laughs> um, is, I think is a good, a good business model. We'll wow. see how it works out a year or two down the road. 
Yeah, for sure. I think uh, it's a beautiful way to kind of end and round this up is it's something that a lot of us forget here in the UK. And I actually have quite a growing uh, international audience as well. So there's a lot of regions where people haven't seen the law move. They haven't seen any real change. So to be able to see, see, see somebody like yourself that has kind of worked through that activism and has then now arrived at being a business owner, being able to offer, uh, sorry, to be able to participate within the 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 models and within the system, I think is a really inspiring and offers people something to to be hopeful about that actually the war can end, things can shift and you can own a piece of the pie. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'll uh, wrap this up here and then because yeah, you've given me two hours. So I want to thank you very much for your for your time, man. I've really thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, yeah, uh, I'll include links to your socials uh, below. Uh, if there anything else you want to kind of check out there, it's the last podcast of the year. Any final thoughts on twenty twenty one? I don't know. I don't, I don't even know what to say. The world changed on me, man. That's the this I. Last year, I was bored in New Jersey. Last Christmas, COVID came. People had masks on. I was scared of catching something and dying. Um, and then, you know, I ended up in Miami <laughs> on a business trip and fell in love with it and thought, what can I do? Mm-hmm. And, you know, this whole thing. So now here I am going on. A year since that happened, a whole business has been created, the joint of Miami, and that's like been my project. I mean, I just recently bought a couple boats, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do some type of cannabis cruises, have boat tours, and mm. you know, just again attracting potheads, <laughs> you know, to jump on a boat, smoke some weed, and go fishing on Weed Man's boat, you know. Yeah, um, man. Oh man, that brands itself. You'd be like, don't miss the boat. You yeah. know what I mean? It literally, yeah. I, I like that. Because again, what you're doing there, I think you're, you're building the culture in the community. You're not just trying to sell people a product. You're trying to create a space for the culture to thrive. And I think that is something that's too often overlooked and missed in the, the modern legalization movement. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, man, this is a great, this is, this is a great interview, man. I, I, I'm feeling it. Uh, likewise, I really thoroughly enjoyed this. So, um, oh yeah, I'll do a bit of housekeeping. Uh, you can enjoy the last of your joint. I'm going to go roll a fresh one, have a nice well-earned cup of tea because it's nearly midnight here in the UK. Um, but yeah, folks, if you've enjoyed this, please give us a like, share, subscribe, all that usual fun on whatever platform you are currently viewing, listening to us on. Check us out over on patreon.com forward slash simple life, where for less than a cup of tea or coffee or your required beverage a week, you can help me keep the lights on in this project. I'll include all the links, as we said below, to uh, NJ Weedman and to everything that he's up to at the minute, including the Joint Miami, which you should check out if you ever find yourself in America's southern peninsula. The little, uh, I'm not going to say that, of America. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say something anatomical about it, but I'm not going to do that. Anyway, folks, you've been wonderful. Peace and love. Take it easy.